please turn with me to Exodus 18. As you turn to Exodus 18, again, let me just invite you to come back out uh, this evening, this afternoon at 5. We're going to be meeting with uh, Blake and uh, his family and just have an opportunity to talk about that ministry. And it's kind of a, I know it's a holiday weekend, but I encourage you to come out and and, uh, just encourage that family. And we'll uh, have the opportunity to affirm their ministry if if that's where God is leading us, and uh, we'll have that, that opportunity at around 5.45 or so, and then our, our celebration of thanks and dessert at, uh, at 6. And so uh, please become, please come and be a part of that. Always a, a neat time of, of the year. And, you know, oftentimes Whitney and I are in, in uh, traveling to go see our family in Texas this week, and so we're not this week. So it's kind of an exciting to get to be able to, to kind of focus more on, on this and, and be a part of that. I'm really looking forward to that. I encourage you to to uh, come and be a part of that as well. Well, we're in Exodus 18, and we are we are not going to get through this this morning. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna set the stage really well, Lord willing. Okay, and uh, we're talking about uh, shepherding and God's uh, call on our on our church to to shepherd one another. Um, we've been kind of in this this section of Exodus where they've left. Egypt and God has provided for them as as they've left Egypt and then we're going to in chapter 19 and following we're going to kind of see this establishment of the covenant as the people arrive at Mount Sinai but here in Exodus 18 you're kind of in between it's, it's a transitional chapter where kind of the, the main theme seems to be how are the people of God going to be shepherded how how is this burden of shepherding going to take place and so this is a it's a very important passage for us as a church to think about, because as we're going to talk about, there are needs here as well, right? So we're going to talk through uh, these these things uh, by God's grace this week and Lord willing next, okay? So if you're there in Exodus 18, you may stand in honor of God as we read his word. Please feel free to sit if you need to uh, at any time. No, there's no, uh, there, no bonus points for standing if, if you need to, to rest and sit, so please feel free to do that as well. But Exodus 18, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. 
and has delivered the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart and went away to his own country. You may be seated. Father, we ask for your continued grace on us this morning. As we study your word, let it, let it penetrate our hearts. And let us love and, and obey you in all things. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's important to remember that there are tremendous needs in this church. That the people who are fellowshipping with you at, at Bethany Community Church have, have tremendous needs. There are lots of people with lots of individual hurts and concerns and, and heartaches. And a key question that I think each of us have to ask ourselves if we're going to be a part of this community of faith, a key question we have to ask ourselves is, how are we going to meet the needs of the people who are at Bethany Community Church? How are we going to meet one another's needs? How are these needs going to be provided for? If that's not a question you're actively asking yourself, how am I going to be able to meet the needs of other people at Bethany Community Church, or how are these needs going to be met? If that's not a question you're, you're asking yourself, if that's not a question that burdens you, you're not thinking rightly about church. Listening to a woman tell a story this, this past week, and she was talking about her middle school years and how hard eighth grade in particular was for her and how she was bullied and just kind of tormented and 
there's kind of one incident in particular that, that really she, she thought about a lot. And things were so rough that eighth grade year at this private school that she was going to that she ultimately decided, she and her family decided she needed to leave the school, and so she left. But it's been something like 15, 20 years, and she still thinks about that year in middle school and how terrible it was and just kind of the, the mean things that some other girls did to her. And she decided recently to contact some of these girls. She had contact information through Facebook and other means, and she asked, hey, can I, can I call you? And so she did, and something very interesting happened. You know, she thought about eighth grade, and in her mind, she was kind of this, this girl who was singled out, and all these other girls were mean to. And, but as she talked to the other girls, she found that none of them could remember one particular incident that had, that had stuck out just really really strongly in her mind. None of them even remember that incident. And instead, each of the other girls could remember some other incident or, or how tough that year was on them. And it, it totally changed how she viewed that year. Instead of viewing that year as this year in which she was just this isolated individual and this, this, this individual who was persecuted in the, the sea of, of popular children, she recognized that she was just one tormented individual in a sea of tormented individuals. So many people were struggling and hurting, and it, it changed her perspective on what life was like that, that year. And the same might be true in the church. You might be unaware of, of how much hurt and, and heartache is going on around you, and it shouldn't be like that, right? But there are people in this room who are struggling with severe illnesses, or are worried about physical things that are going on in their life. There, there are people in this room who are dealing with, with emotional heartache. There are people who are going just through, through tremendous times of struggle and torment and, and, and lack peace right now and, and are, are, are very, very sorrowful. There are people who are struggling with, with guilt and, and shame as they think about things that have happened in the past. There are people in this church with tremendous hurts and tremendous needs And it is an incredible burden to think about, right? And so we ask ourselves, how are these needs going to be met? How are people who are hurting going to be cared for? Think about two biblical truths. Think about people who are hurting and how their needs are going to be met. One truth is, is simply this. God is the ultimate shepherd, right? Think about what the psalmist says in, in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This is, this is a beautiful psalm describing God's provision and, and his absolute ability to shepherd us to the utmost, to care for all, in, all our needs. The psalmist says in Psalm, psalm 91 two, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may 
fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord Yahweh your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, because he holds me fast. He holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. This is God speaking. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God is our great shepherd. He is the one who is ultimately in charge of meeting every need that any of us have. That's one great truth that comes through in Scripture. Peter refers to, to Jesus as the, as the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. So, so that's comforting, right? That's one truth that comes through very clearly in Scripture. God is the great shepherd who's in charge of meeting all the other needs. The other truth that I think comes through in Scripture clearly is that God has provided his, his flock, his church, his community of faith in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has provided his people with, with under-shepherds. With shepherds underneath the great shepherd whose task it is to, to care for the flock. He hasn't, in other words, just said, okay, I'm going to have one charismatic leader and this one charismatic leader is going to solve everyone's problems. He said, no, the way in which I'm going to care for my people is to provide a, a multitude of leaders who, who care for the needs of people. And in both the Old and New Testament, we see not only does he provide multiple leaders, but he provides multiple leaders underneath multiple leaders and, and leaders under leaders. And this, 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 this culture of, of shepherding that permeates a community of faith. What I want us to see this morning and next week as we look at this passage is that with Jesus Christ as the, the chief shepherd, God maximizes his glory by using multiple under-shepherds to care for his flock. With, with Jesus Christ as the, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, with, with Jesus as the great shepherd, God maximizes his glory in a church by using multiple under-shepherds to care for his flock. And we're going to talk about why that is. Why, by God using multiple under-shepherds, his glory is magnified. We'll, we'll talk through that even more next week as we kind of begin talking about it this morning. But, but that's what God does. God maximizes his glory in a church by having Jesus Christ be the great shepherd, but then by using multiple under-shepherds to, to care for people. And what we're going to talk about this morning is, is how that looks. How does it look to have multiple shepherds? What kind of church culture needs to exist for this to work well? In fact, there's, there's kind of three goals I have. One goal over the next two weeks is just to kind of present this vision of shepherding. What does it look like to have multiple shepherds and, and multiple people caring for one another's needs? I want to kind of share that vision and for all, us all to be excited about it. So I think about Seth and Kemp and, and his ministry at Bethany Community Church. I think one of the, the great things that, that he did was, was help cr- begin to create this, this culture. I, th- I think he did 
this very well and helping people see their, their needs being met through, through care groups and, and seeing this, this structure of, of shepherding begin to take shape. That, that, I want to create that, help, help create that vision again in our, in our church, remind us of that vision again. A, a second goal that I would have this morning and next week would be that each of us would commit to being a, a part of this structure. Say, okay, I, I recognize if I'm going to call Bethany Community Church home, th- this can't be a place that I just come in on a Sunday morning or attend on a Wednesday night or kind of come to um, fund dessert fellowships. You, you can tell I'm a little bit hungry right now. I'm thinking about dessert a lot, but uh, or pizza lunch later. Uh, as, as we think about as we think about the the community of, of faith that I'm a part of, I, I'm going to commit to be a part of that shepherding structure. I'm going to commit to, to caring for the needs of other believers. That would be a second goal. So seeing the vision, committing to be a part of caring for other people. And, and a third goal would be that people would know where assistance can be found, that people would know where to look for help dealing with physical and spiritual difficulties that, that God has brought into their life. So with that in mind, let's, let's think through some wisdom principles for how biblical shared leadership looks in a community of faith. In other words, what does it look like to have this, this church structure in which others are meeting one another's needs, where it's not just one charismatic individual at the, the, the helm of a ship, but instead there are multiple people caring for the needs of one another. Let's think through some wisdom principles and what, what that looks like, because Exodus 18 is a very practical wisdom-filled chapter. Here's the first thing I want us to think about. Number one, shared leadership flourishes where the gospel is proclaimed and God's glory is magnified. Shared leadership in a church, shared shepherding, flourishes where the gospel is proclaimed and God's glory is magnified. Look there at the text with me, if you would. And we see that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, arrives. And Jethro has uh, several names in the, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament. We see him referred to as, as Jethro, his rule in Exodus chapter 2, Jethro in 418, uh, Hobab in Numbers in the book of Judges. So it's not unusual for a person to have multiple names, but this is Moses' father-in-law. And uh, apparently at some point in Moses' ministry, as, as he's uh, either in Egypt or as he's on the way to Egypt, we know that Zipporah was with him, but at some point Moses sends his wife and his children back to be with his father-in-law, with Zipporah's father, Jethro, and perhaps for their safety. And now Jethro tells Moses, hey, uh, I'm on my way. I've, I've heard of the things that God has done. I, I know where you're at, and now I'm going to come to you. And Moses welcomes him when he arrives. And notice the, the content of their conversation. They, he arrives and says hello to his family. Moses shows respect to his father-in-law. And they walk into the tent. And look at verse 8. Look what Moses says. It says that Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Now remember what we've said about what has happened in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is this picture of of deliverance. It's this physical deliverance, God's salvation displayed physically, and it's a picture of God's spiritual deliverance in his son Jesus. And so as Moses proclaims God's character and his actions to his people, Moses is proclaiming the gospel to his father-in-law. 
Remember what we saw in the book of Exodus earlier. God says, look, I'm going to do these things. Why? So that my glory would be known among the Egyptians and and among all the nations. Uh, Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham, through the Israelites, all the nations were going to be blessed. Moses is proclaiming all of that to his father-in-law. He tells him what God has done, what Yahweh has, has done, all the hardship that's come upon them in the way and how Yahweh, how the Lord has delivered them. And look at Jethro's response. It says that Jethro rejoiced, and I believe what's happening here is conversion. First of all, there's, there's a joy and delight in the work of God. And it's not just kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm really happy that some nice things happened to you. No, Jethro's joy and his response of worship that we see later is all tied into the character of who God is. It says that he rejoiced, verse 9, for all the good that Yahweh, God specifically, the God of Israel, had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro says, Blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, verse 11, that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Jethro hears about God's salvific work, And exactly what God said he wanted to have happen, happens in Jethro's life. Jethro recognizes the unique glory of God and worships him. It says in verse 12 that he offers sacrifices to God. So he hears, he listens to what Moses says about who God is. He contemplates God's salvific work and he worships God as a result. That's, I believe, a conversion of this pagan priest. Now, here's why this is important. I want you to see the context in which shared leadership can operate biblically. It's one thing to say, you know what, it'd be nice if there were just a bunch of leaders to kind of help share the work. But if there isn't a, a common... In, in a church, if there isn't a, a common commitment to the gospel and God's glory, that, that shared leadership thing isn't going to work. What's going to happen is you're just going to create a, a bunch of leaders with all, all with their own agendas, all with their own desires, their own pet projects. And instead of creating a, a church that's functioning as God would have it function, you're just creating a church with a bunch of different factions led by different leaders. But for shared leadership, to, to flourish in a church, for, for it to, to go well, for it to be biblical, what you have to have is a bunch of leaders who are committed to, to the gospel. You say, okay, uh, my, my commitment here is, is on God's glory and not my own. Notice that the content of what Moses shares with Jethro. He didn't say, hey, uh, pops, let me tell you about how awesome I nailed this whole, whole Pharaoh thing. I took myself into Egypt, and I told Pharaoh, what's up? And then these yahoos of the Israelites, that, you know, they, they, they didn't know their left from the right. And I told them, hey, guys, this is how it's going to be. And they followed me out. That's, that's not what he does. He talks about God. This is what God did. This is what Yahweh did. And Jethro's response isn't, wow, Moses, you're an amazing leader. It's like, well, God is amazing, right? For shared leadership to work well in a biblical way, you must have a, a church-wide, a community of faith-wide commitment to the, to the gospel being proclaimed through your ministry and God's glory being magnified and not your own. 
few years ago, uh, had the opportunity of meeting with a Pastor Rich, and, and Pastor Rich was approached by some some church leaders at a different church and said, hey, we may have shared some of this with you before, but they, they asked Rich if he'd come with them and, and kind of talk with them about their ministry. And Rich invited me to, to come along with them. And the, the different members of the church and different leaders kind of talked about all these different things they want in their church. And they're, the, the church had been healthy at one time and wasn't healthy at the moment, they would all say, and, and attendance had dwindled. And, and each of them kind of talked about what they wanted the, the church to be. I wanted the church to be to be big. I want the church to be small, said another. I want the church to have this type of music. I think we need to do this with our youth, said another leader. And there were just a lot of different things that, and none of the things were bad necessarily, but, but you could tell each leader kind of had this this pet project or this, this, this set vision for specific things about how they wanted their church to look. And Rich said something that I think was was exactly right and very helpful for me to think about as, as a young person. He said, I would encourage each of you you imagine this this table is your church. He said, I, I would imagine you, I would encourage you to all just clear the table of all all your vision for this church. You know, this whatever size you want it to be, whatever type of music you want it to have, what type of people you want to be here, what type of serve, how long you want the service. I just kind of, just just clear it all off the table. He says, just put one thing on the table, and that's the glory of God. So, okay, as leaders, we're going to be committed to the glory of God and, and the proclamation of his glory through the, the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I would be the, the first to admit that um, that um, God still has work to do in, in the lives of the leaders at Bethany Community Church. Pick a leader, there's still work to do, Right? But I can honestly tell you this morning, I cannot imagine a scenario in, in which there would be a, a factitious power play where a group said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm vying for power in the church and I want to seize power. It just, not that that isn't, doesn't exist in any of our hearts, but I, I believe that God, by his grace, is, at this moment in the life of our church, has created such a, a passion for the gospel that, that any any power play would just it would just seem so unseemly <laughs> like it, it just even if you wanted to do it, it just seemed so so crass and so contrary to, to the beauty of the gospel and God's glory that has to be true of us we have to continue that commitment and it must be true in, in every facet of the church every person saying okay I'm I'm not going to be consumed with self and I'm going to be consumed with a passion for the glory of God needs are not going to be met in our church unless that's our passion Here's a second wisdom principle to think about. Number two, shared leadership requires humility. Requires humility to receive criticism and listen to counsel. Again, we're talking about the environment in which shared shepherding and leadership can can flourish. Requires humility. Look look what happens next. This is this is a remarkable remarkable scene. And remember what's just happened. Jethro has listened to his son-in-law. And responded well. Now his son-in-law listens to him. I, I thought about entitling this message "Dave Pate's Favorite Passage in Scripture." Dave Pate is my father-in-law, and I realized that title wouldn't make sense to anyone. But Dave, my father-in-law, really does love this passage because it is this this picture of a son-in-law listening well to his father-in-law. It says uh, they, they they get together, 
And I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice, first of all, some, some practical principles for how to give counsel with humility, okay? So here's Jethro, and, and here's, here's Moses. Uh, you know, he's sitting, and, he, and he's judging throughout the day. And we, we see, first of all, Jethro and, and the counsel that he gives. And, and notice the way that he gives counsel with humility. The, the first thing that you notice about his counsel is there's observation and involvement before speaking. Jethro doesn't say, Moses, I know you're getting ready for the day. Let me, let me tell you how we do it in, in Midian. This is how we, we judge, you know, and gives him some advice. That's, that's not how he does it. He, he first of all observes. He, he watches Moses at work. I've had the opportunity a couple times to, to go to conferences and speak to uh, people who are passionate about orphan care ministry and um, normally the, the speakers at, at these types of conferences are, you know, professionals and, and people who have, have done, thought a lot about orphan care work. I'm one of the few local church pastors that will, will speak occasionally at these things. And so people will often come to me and say, okay, ha- you're a local church pastor. Um, I'm at this church and they don't have an orphan care ministry. What do I do? How do I get these leaders to, 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 to get it? How do I help them understand how important orphan care ministry is? And I'll often ask, I'll say, well, tell me what what ministries are you involved in right now? Like, how are you supporting your leaders? I mean, what, what do you know about different ministries that, that already exist? And, and they'll say, um, yeah, not, not really anything. I, I just want them to get it. <laughs> so, well, here's my encouragement. My, my encouragement would be to begin with, with just observing what, what's going on in your leaders' lives. Know your church. Think about the, the ministries that are taking place before you begin to offer critique. Find out where the hurts are. Jethro does that. He, he observes first, number one. The second thing that he does, notice here as, as he gives counsel, he's, motivi- he's motivated by concern for the shepherd. He's motivated by concern for the shepherd. Jethro doesn't come in there and say, uh, Moses, man, my Zipporah has married a moron. And uh, I want to I show you what a moron you are, and I, I want you to realize how smart I am. And, and oftentimes, whenever people approach shepherds with, with criticism, their desire would, would, is not born out of a, a motivation of, I, I, I love this guy, and I, I love this shepherd, and I, I want good things to happen. The motivation is, you know, I kind of want to knock their feet out from under them and show them and then expose them for being bad leaders. Had a friend from Texas one time talking about his, his pastor, and he was very upset at him. He rattled all these things that this pastor was doing. He says, you know, this, this, this pastor, he preaches heresy. One time he talked about the Holy Spirits, like they were plural, and that's heresy. I said, well, do you, do you think he meant that, or do you think it was just kind of a slip of the tongue? He goes, it doesn't matter. I got him. You know, I'm like, well, I think you're misunderstanding the point here, right? I think you're misunderstanding. If we're going to, to counsel well, with humility, it's born out of a concern for the shepherd, right? A third thing that we see here about Jethro and his, his approach to his son-in-law here, there's, there's clarifying questions that are asked, and, and, and the answers that are given are incorporated into the response. So there's, you don't just come and say, well, I'm, I'm observing this, and, and I'm kind of, well, I care about the person, so I'm going to give him some advice. There, there's questions that are asked. You know, Proverbs 18.3 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it's to his folly and shame. So Jethro asks the question. He says, hey, hey what, what are you doing? 
why, why are you doing this? Why are you sitting alone? And, and Moses gives this answer. We'll talk about his answer in a second. But, but Jethro, as he's going to give his advice, incorporates what Moses says he's trying to do in, into his advice that he gives. And then finally, no, notice this also. Notice this also. Whenever there's, there's humble critique and, and counsel given, it, it's direct. Jethro doesn't try to manipulate, doesn't try to guilt him, doesn't try to hedge and haw and him and haw, try to, you know, he just comes out and says, uh, what you're doing isn't good. He's, he's direct, lovingly direct. Now, now notice, it from, notice it from Moses' perspective. What, what do we notice about Moses as, as he receives this correction from his father-in-law? The first thing we notice about Moses, right, is that he's, he recognizes the value of, of outside information. He recognizes that Jethro, even though Jethro isn't an Israelite, even though he hasn't walked with the people, even though he could just very easily have said, look, Jethro, you know, I was there whenever we came out of Egypt. I was the guy with the staff that, that parted the waters. So excuse me if I, if I have a little bit of a better sense of what's going on here than you do. Um, I've talked to a burning bush in which God's presence was manifested. So <laughs> your advice is cute, but, but I, I know what I'm doing. That's not Moses' response here. He's humble. He receives the correction. We also see in Moses' response that, that he responds to questions that are asked without defensiveness. Jethro asks him this question, why are you doing it? And, and Moses thinks about what Jethro is asking and saying, well, well here's, here's why I'm doing this. And his reason isn't bad, right? He goes, look, um, you know, they have a dispute. I'm deciding between them. I need them to know the statutes of God and his laws. And again, as we look at Jethro's response next week, we're going to see that Jethro, as he gives advice, recognizes Moses is right, that that's an important duty. That's an important responsibility that he has. We also see in Moses' response, and, and this is so crucial, this is so, so crucial in leadership and shepherding. In Moses' response, what is revealed is that he cares more about people than his ego. Moses cares more about the people. And we see this in his response and as he implements a solution. We see it in Numbers 12 that we're going to look at next week. Moses cares far more about people than he does his own ego. He's willing to implement a system that minimizes his own influence because he cares so deeply about the needs of other people being met. And brothers and sisters, there are going to be times whenever you seek to shepherd others, when you try to, to, to put yourself forward to, to minister to others, where your ego is going to be attacked, right? There are going to be times where you think that you have the ability to speak into a situation and and someone else says, no, I, I don't think so. There are going to be times where you, you think you should be recognized in, in such a way and, and through circumstances and God's providence and maybe through the voices of other people are going to say, you know what? We don't see that. And if you're not ready to have your ego deflated, if you're not ready to be slighted, you're not ready to shepherd. 
you're not ready to shepherd. If you can't handle insults to your ego, you're not ready to shepherd the people of God the way that he's called you to. Here's the third thing, and we're not going to have time to, to get through this, but a third thing I want you to think about. Shared leadership recognizes the limitations of any one individual shepherd. This is Jethro speaking again, and, and as he speaks, we, we recognize again, as we think about this context in which shared leadership flourishes, shared leadership recognizes the limitations of any one individual shepherd. Jethro says, you and the people with you are going to certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. That word heavy, that, that Hebrew word that we translate heavy here in the English is kaved. And when I was memorizing that, that Hebrew word, I kind of thought of a cow, ka, cow, ved. And I thought of a big bed, or I thought of a tiny bed and a big cow. And this big cow kind of plopping down on this, this tiny bed. And the cow is too heavy. It's too, too, too much of a load. And, and that's the idea here. Well, I don't know if it, count a bed is the idea here. But the idea is that this, this kaved, it's, it's heavy. There's just weight. And, and whatever's trying to hold up this, this weight isn't sufficient to the task. Moses has to recognize if he's going to, to shepherd the people of God well, he's going to have to recognize that he doesn't have the ability to, to bear the load that he might desire to bear. He's insufficient for the task. And my encouragement to you Wherever you are called to shepherd, you must also recognize your limitations. We'll talk more about this next week, but whether you are an Awana leader or a a small group leader, if you're a care group leader, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you're involved in our biblical counseling ministry, if you're an adult Sunday school teacher, a children's Sunday school teacher, if you are a a pastor, an elder, a deacon, whatever, leading a, a women's Bible study group, whatever ministry God has has placed you in, you are insufficient for it. You are limited in your ability to do it, to perform the task that God has put before you. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Why is it a beautiful thing? Because as you and I recognize our limitations, as we recognize that we do not have the ability to to shepherd people and meet the needs that we desire to, to meet, we have to bring other people along. As we bring other people along, and, and they're also insufficient for these things, there's only one to whom we can all ultimately turn, and that's God. In other words, the gospel of God is proclaimed by our limitations. And the glory of God is magnified as our weaknesses are displayed. Brothers and sisters, in, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your leadership, if you labor under the delusion that you are sufficient for these things and you don't have these limitations, you are denying the people that you're around the opportunity to see the glory of God displayed in your weakness. Shared leadership flourishes when we recognize the limitations of one, any one individual shepherd. We'll talk more about this this next week, but but any church structure, any family structure that, that believes that one charismatic individual, we don't, we don't have that problem at Bethany Community of Charisma, obviously, in leadership, but any, any church that suffers under that delusion that we can, can follow one leader that has undermined the gospel, we recognize our limitations. 
we recognize that there's one great, great shepherd, one chief shepherd, and God's glory is maximized by having multiple shepherds care for his flock underneath that, that great shepherd. What we're going to do uh, is, is I'm going to pray for us, then I'm going to ask you, in fact, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask you to stand now. You can take a minute to gather your things there. I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll pray the prayer of benediction. I'll pray, and then we'll pray the prayer of benediction together. Encourage you to come back uh, even now for lunch. Meet with Ben, talk about evangelism. Encourage you to come back uh, this evening at uh, 5 o'clock. I love when we pray, and I get to watch everyone stand up, and just kind of the, you know, we're going to go out and do it, guys. Wait, we can do this thing, right? Let's just care for one another. Just care for our needs. We're going to go out and uh, come back this evening for our uh, our, our time of, of talking with Blake and Kristen and uh, their kids and affirming them in ministry and then come back at, at six for our time of a celebration of thanks. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in him. We thank you that we are not sufficient for these things in ourselves. We thank you for your provision of others in our lives who will care for us. Allow us to commit to this, Father, to commit to one another's lives commit to caring for one another in, in, in tough circumstances and rejoicing with, with one another in, in joyful circumstances. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And God's people said with joy, amen.